Okay, as you can see from your, your handout there, uh, we're going to be covering chapters 28 and 29 in the Confession uh, this morning. Chapter 28 simply just introduces us to the two ordinances that are given to the church by our Lord Jesus, that of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 29, we're going to dig more into the issue of baptism. Um, and then next week, Lord willing, Desmond is going to walk us through uh, the ordinance of, of the Lord's Supper. So with that, let's begin <clears throat> by reading the first paragraph there in chapter 28. So you want to read that for us? Okay, so as we kind of launch, I thought it would be good first to kind of define what is, what is an ordinance, and just very simply stated here, and an ordinance is a direction or command of an authoritative nature, okay, or a custom or practice established by usage or authority, okay, so the thing that's common within that definition is that aspect of the authoritative nature, and it's given by command or direction. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are commands and practices established by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So they're, they're not something simply that, you know, people would look back and say, this is just church tradition, right? Um, and I think, you know, just depending on your upbringing and where you've come from, um, maybe you kind of have it associated just with kind of church tradition. But what we want to see first and foremost is that these are ordained or given by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're his commands for us. He's the one who instituted these, not the church. And they are appointed by him. So in that first paragraph, it says that these ordinances are to be perpetual or continual. They're, they're to be continued in the church after the apostles died and are only to cease with the end of the world. Okay, so they started then and they will end at the consummation of all things. And a few passages here that the confession cites uh, that help us to see that. First one, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. If somebody would like to read that for us. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Okay, so just highlighted a couple things there. First, the baptism, when we talk about the ordinance of bapti uh, baptism, baptizing them, and then notice the last thing he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the implication there is that this baptism, this making of disciples, will continue all the way until the return of Christ. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 26, if somebody wants to read that for us. Okay, good. So another issue there with the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, so it, there's a perpetual nature to it, right? It's not just going to be a one-time thing that you do, like baptism, uh, but there's a continuance that happens here, and it's until he comes, okay? So all the way all the way to the end. So that's really what the first paragraph is seeking just to lay out there is the, uh, what the ordinances are and the perpetual nature of those. Okay? All right, let's go to the second paragraph there. 
if somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, now there's been a lot of discussion regarding this paragraph and the one that's like it in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the discussion really revolves around what, what biblical evidence do we have in restricting the ordinances to be administered by those who are qualified and called to do so, which in, in the minds of the authors of the 1689 meant the elders of the local church, as we've looked at that uh, in, in weeks past. So the scriptures that the confession refer to here all deal with men who are called to be stewards or that which belongs to God. They're to be the one who the ones who administer his possessions. And I you know to be honest I don't think any of these passages specifically uh, either individually or taken as a whole speak to the issue of administering the ordinances. Uh, but with that, I do believe that you can make a case from the biblical principles and responsibilities that are given to the elders of each church. Um, for, for example, elders, as we've looked at in, in past weeks, are called to oversee the congregation. If you remember, we kind of looked at those three different uh, titles that were given to the office of elder, one of those being overseeing, watching over for, and caring for the flock of Christ. This obviously would include the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper when these ordinances are properly understood. Baptism is, again, and we'll get into this more here in a minute, but it's that sign that one has been brought into the faith, and then the Lord's Supper is the sign of continuation in that faith. Um, before one is baptized, there's typically a public profession of some type that they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the charges that the elders have is to make sure to the best of their ability that those who are coming into the local church as, as members are legitimately in Christ, right, before they're, before they're baptized. So we, that's a great responsibility, and we see that being given specifically uh, to the elders. So you can see how this relates to the issue of baptism, uh, that the person genuinely understands the, go uh, the gospel because that's what baptism is all about. It's pointing to that. And then as we think about the Lord's Supper, we see that oversight is necessary here because if, if one abandons the faith that they once professed, uh, they're to be admonished that this meal is for those who are holding to and trusting in the sufficiency of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and whose lives are consistent with that profession. Okay, so that's, again, the responsibilities that elders are given. You can see how those two ordinances kind of fit under those responsibilities, making sure that person really understands the gospel before they're baptized and also making sure that person is living a life in accordance with the gospel that they are professing. So again, I think from a biblical perspective, a case can be sufficiently made for the administration and oversight of these ordinances um, by the elders of the local church. Now you can get into a lot of different issues where people will bring it. Yeah, but what about 
that guy way, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, those are way out there and we don't want to overreach and get into all these, you know, the, the general thing that we want to see from scripture is that this should be overseen by the elders of a local church because they're the ones who are given the responsibility and the ones who will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for, for how they've stewarded uh, the flock of God that has been entrusted to them. So I think the writers of the confession are right when they're looking at this and they're, and they're saying that this responsibility is given uh, to the leadership uh, in a local church um, without getting into all those, you know, really random cases that, that, can, uh, that can pop up. Okay, so let's move on now. Uh, again, chapter 28 was just kind of just telling us, here's what these ordinances are. Um, now we're going to shift into chapter 29, look at baptism, and as I mentioned earlier, Lord willing, Desmond will pick up with the Lord's Supper uh, next week. So moving into chapter 29, we address here specifically the subject of baptism. And really what this chapter is dealing with, what the confession's getting at here, are mainly three questions. What baptism is, who it's for, and how it should be done. Okay, what baptism is, who it's for, and how it should be done is the overarching questions that are answered in this paragraph. So, let's go ahead and begin by reading paragraph 1 here in chapter 29. Somebody can read that for us. Thanks, Des. So, chapter 28, we already spent some time uh, looking at the fact that baptism is an ordinance given by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not going to hit on that again. I want to focus on what the confession says about baptism being a sign. You see that mentioned there in, in the first paragraph. What is it a sign of? And there's three things in particular that the confession brings out here. First, it says... It's a sign of our fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection and being united to him. Okay, So it's a sign of our fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection being united to him. So union with Christ is what's being, what's being hit on here. I really appreciated what John Piper had to say regarding the meaning of baptism. I think he really just kind of gets at the heart of what we want to be thinking about when we think about baptism. He says this, Baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in our place and for our sins, and from his triumph over death in the resurrection that guarantees our new and everlasting life. Baptism has meaning and importance only because the death and resurrection of Jesus are infinitely important for our rescue from the wrath of God and our everlasting joy in his glorious presence. We are not mainly talking about religious ritual here. We are not mainly talking about church tradition here. We are mainly talking about Jesus Christ and his magnificent work of salvation and dying for our sins and rising for our justification. 
talking about baptism means talking about how Jesus taught us to express our faith in Jesus and his great salvation. So I think Piper really kind of hits the nail on the head with that, with that summarization of what baptism is. That's what we want to be thinking about as we see baptism. It's about the work of Christ, what he's accomplished, and us now being united to him. Now, one of the passages that clearly points to this union with Christ is Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, that the confession cites here. And I've got it up here on the wall rather than screen. Um, so if somebody can read that for us. Amen. Uh, so, awesome passage there that helps us to see what baptism is about. And, you know, this is, as you try to grasp this, right, you try to get a hold of this mind-blowing reality of what Paul is saying here. But, in, in essence, it's this, that in space and time, uh, we were united to Christ. We were justified by faith. But when that happened, we were, as it were, taken back 2,000 years ago and made participants in the death and resurrection of Christ. So when he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. Now, the reality of what happened 2,000 years ago isn't applied until we are converted, but that's what happened. That's what Paul's pointing back to. He says, you see the death of Christ, believer? That's your death. You see the resurrection of Christ? That's your resurrection in him because of your union with, with him. That's, that's what it's pointing to. That's what it's a sign of. That's what it's a picture of. That's what it's displaying. Your death and resurrection with Christ, your union with him. Uh, G.I. Williamson said this about baptism. I thought it was helpful. He says, baptism simply expresses the verbal content of the gospel in nonverbal form, right? So the gospel is preached in baptism without words necessarily. Obviously, you have the person, you know, confessing. Uh, but what you're looking at, what you're seeing, is a picture of that gospel that you read about, as is the Lord's Supper. That does will get into, uh, into next week. Um, but, but it's displaying that for you. And that's why we... We want to be as uh, clear as we can when we see a baptism tank take place, right? We're not, we don't want to unnecessarily quarrel with people when we think about, well, do they have to go all the way down and come all the way back up? And we're like, yeah, because what it's picturing, right? right? What's, what's happening in that is important. What, what you're seeing and not hearing should be displaying to you the gospel of Jesus Christ as best as, as, best as it as it can. And, and Paul says here that there's a purpose behind our union with Christ in his death. And that is, as verse 4 says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay? So not only have we been united in his death, but also in his resurrection. Uh, to the effect that you now live a new life. And that new life is one that's characterized by righteousness, right? Whereas your old life was characterized 
uh, by sin. So your, your one desire now as a new creation in Christ is to live a life that is pleasing to God, right? That's what it means to walk in newness of life. A few of the passages that, that talk about this newness of life. Um, first, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Somebody want to read that for us? I will give you a new heart, a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my words. Thank you. Now, I gotta take a quick time out here because I just realized my daughter was there and now I don't see her. So, thank you. I didn't see that. I appreciate that. So, like, heart stop moment, I was like, all right, hold on a second. I don't, I'm observing the crowd and I don't see her. So, thank you. Okay, back to the lesson. Uh, a great passage here that speaks to the reality of what happened to us at our conversion, right? That heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is given. That's what we're seeing in baptism, right? That we died with Christ, we're raised with him. We're, we're made new creatures in Christ. Another passage that really speaks well to this aspect of being a new creation or walking in newness of life, Psalm 40, verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That, that's, that's the song now that's over our lives as believers, Right? And, and that song is so radically different from the song that was sung over us and who we were by nature, right? There's, there's a newness to this that we have been given, that who we were in Adam is no longer and who we are in Christ now is. And that is a glorious song that is over us in Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18, if somebody would like to read that for us. Anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Okay, so again, that aspect of newness of life. There's, there's just this distinct change that has taken place in this person's life, right? That's why we're so big on, on conversion. If a person says that they're converted, it, it's a new life. It ought to be a new life. There's a radical transformation that's taken place. New desires, new longings, new passions. And baptism is displaying that reality of, of what's taken place. That old man is dead the new man has come. And it's a glorious reality. And this passage in particular, I just love the, uh, you know, how expansive it is, right? If anyone is in Christ, Pastor Jack will preach on this here in a little bit in, in uh, 1 Timothy 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? Whoever you are, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. No matter your past, your background, whatever the case may be, you call upon the Lord. And that's one of the glorious things is we get together and we hear baptismal testimonies. You just hear people that are coming from all different circumstances and walks of life, but then there's just this massive common theme right in the middle of it. And Christ rescued me from my rebellion against him, right? And made me a new creation in him. So it's a, a glorious uh, reality that we've been taken out of union with Adam with whom we're all united by nature, and we've been brought into union with Christ, with whom we're united by grace through faith. So that's the first thing the confession talks about here, uh, about what baptism is a sign of. And then secondly, it says this, that the confession, uh, I'm sorry, that baptism is a sign of the remission or forgiveness 
of sins. Okay? It's a sign of the remission or forgiveness of sins. Now, again, notice that it's a sign of the forgiveness of sins and does not actually remove the sins themselves. We don't hold that a person's sins are forgiven when they are baptized, but rather that it's a sign of their sins having already been forgiven. Uh, the reality of their sins being forgiven took place when they were baptized into Christ spiritually, right? Which is what water baptism is displaying. So, water baptism is a picture of what has already happened in the believer's life. The reality that those sins, though many, have been have been taken away. And again, what what a beautiful picture as you try to put all these things together and you hear what the scriptures consistently tell us about baptism, you see the different ways that it kind of hits on it, right? And, and the beauty of it. So you can look at the same thing, baptism, and you can see it from a couple, couple different angles as it's described in scripture, all essentially saying the same thing, but coming at it from slightly different directions to just give us that full picture of what has taken place. It's that picture that our sins have been washed away, that we've been cleansed totally of our sins. Um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know that washing with water was often used to purify various things, uh, including people, especially priests who were ministering in the tabernacle and temple, as we see when Moses was commanded by God to set apart Aaron and his sons uh, for their priestly service to God. This is uh, from Leviticus 8.6. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. This, this consecration that was taking place, this purification for service, right? And you see that in baptism as well. The reality that we've been washed clean in the sight of God because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And another passage that speaks to this very clearly in the New Testament, Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7, if somebody would like to, uh, to hit on that for us or read that for us. Thank you, Will. So that, that passage there, as the original readers or, or hearers are hearing this letter, they would have rightly connected the term washing that is used here in verse 5 with something being made clean or holy, that washing of regeneration. So baptism, the washing of the body is a picture of the reality of the washing that has already taken place through the Holy Spirit when he regenerated us. So you have that aspect of it's a sign of the remission of sins. And then the third thing the confession mentions here is that baptism is a sign of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And I've kind of touched on that earlier looking at Romans 6, 4. But just to say, you know, one more thing about it, and that is that it's portraying again that reality that the old is gone, the new has come, that my life is laid down for the glory of God, that I am here in His service to magnify His name in my life in this world and to the people of God. 
Um, declaring there, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Um, so really, it goes, goes to that hymn, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Uh, we're giving ourselves up unto, unto God. And, you know, one of the things that's important about that is um, during New Testament times, they understood the cost of what baptism might mean for them, that they were being marked out, set apart as followers of Christ, whom, for the most part, was rejected amongst the people. Uh, so they recognized that this, this marking out, this setting aside of me, me declaring that I'm now following Christ, essentially is a death sentence or an, an excommunication from the family, from friends, from the community, everything that you have known. And it's like that way in many parts of the world still today. Um, they understand that as this baptism takes place, I'm renouncing whatever my former religion was or whatever the case may be, and I'm following Christ now. And this is going to mean a lot. So uh, we want to keep that in mind of what, what baptism is uh, displaying and the significance of it. Okay, so let's look now at uh, paragraph 2 here in chapter 29 and consider who baptism is for and how it is to be done. So somebody want to read paragraph 2 for us there? Those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ Okay, now, that paragraph would set off a firestorm <laughs> when it was originally written, and you can imagine why, uh, because many who were uh, breaking away from the Catholic Church were still holding to infant baptism, and so the writers wanted to be very clear of who it is that they believe are fit to be baptized, and they recognized that um, they were going to depart greatly from their Presbyterian brothers uh, in, this, in this regard. Um, what the confession is clearly stating here is what we believe the Bible teaches, and, and that is what, that is that baptism is for professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, again, this, this would separate them, just thinking about the context in which the the 1689 is, is written. Um, this would separate them from those who were holding to infant baptism as a means by which God regenerates the person being baptized. Uh, Roman Catholics, obviously breaking away from the Catholic Church. Many Lutherans hold to this as well. But more closely related to us in the Reformed tradition, again, our Presbyterian brothers who also baptize infants but don't believe that through this ordinance that the infant is being born again. So there's a, there's a distinction there. Um, but rather that it's a symbol that the infant is a member of the covenant community, much in the same way that the male infants under the old covenant were circumcised as a sign of their membership in the covenant community of Israel. Now, we could just spend a lot of time on, on this issue here. And I don't want to oversimplify this too much. If I had Presbyterian brothers here, be like, that's an oversimplification of what we believe. I understand. So I'm going to just put it out there in case they listen to this. This is an oversimplification of what you believe in, but I still think it demands an answer. Um, so I, I want to help you to see why we would lovingly disagree 
um, with, with our brothers who would hold, not that this regenerates um, a person, uh, but that it's a sign that they're included in the covenant uh, community. The main reason that we see a difference here is because we're going to see a difference between the old and new covenants in a greater way than our Presbyterian brothers would. Under the old covenant, it was commanded by God that a male Israelite infant be circumcised as a sign that he was included in the covenant community of Israel. And again, this is going to be an oversimplification, I understand, so there's a lot more to say, and I'm going to point you to some resources that will be helpful for you. Um, but essentially, what was necessary in order for a person to be a member of this covenant community? Now, again, I'm speaking here specifically about the issue of infants uh, being baptized because the law did make provision under the old covenant for foreigners to come into the covenant community of Israel. I'm not going to hit on that right now because that's not really the issue with where we would you know, have a difference with our, our Presbyterian brothers. But what was necessary to be a member of this covenant community? How did you gain entrance into the old covenant community, in other words? Well, you were born in the line of Abraham, right? Physical birth brings you into this community. And what's the sign that you're in this old covenant community? Circumcision, okay? So circumcision is the sign that you're in the old covenant community of Israel. Now, under the new covenant, what is it that is necessary to be a member of this covenant community? Right? Well, not being born physically, but being born again. Right? So it's not physical, it's spiritual. And you kind of get a sense of that when the Pharisees were coming to the baptism of John, if you remember that back in John, or Matthew chapter 3. Do you remember what one of the things that John said to the Pharisees as they came? Do not presume to say that we have Abraham as our father. For God is able to make, able to take stones and raise them up, right? So, a very clear point there, this issue of, of coming to John's baptism, this is what John's basically saying, you need to be baptized, <laughs> right? And the argument there, we're already members in the covenant community. We're already in. Abraham's our father. You see them get into this argument again with Jesus in John chapter 8, okay? And so, and so John kind of cuts through that and he shows them that's not the issue, your physical birth does not bring you into this covenant community. You must be born again. And then what is the sign that you're in this covenant community? Baptism. Okay? So that's why we would hold with the uh, writers of the 1689 that professing believers are on the only fit subjects for baptism. Okay? Again, that's a, that's a big old, there's, there's a lot of theology behind <laughs> those statements there. There's, there's a lot there. I'm going to give you a couple resources that I think can help you if you want to dive into this a little bit further. But again, physical birth does not make you a member of the new covenant 
uh, community. And in fact, what we see in Scripture, again, is that your physical birth simply declares that you're a member of Adam's fallen race, that you're a child of wrath by nature, and that you must be born again to be found acceptable in the sight of God. I think there are a few passages that, that uh, point to that reality. And by the way, that, that, that point of our union with Adam by nature and then our union with Christ by grace is a very big point um, in this discussion about infant baptism versus believer's baptism or pedo-baptism, credo-baptism. Uh, um, Sam and Micah Renahan, in a book that I'm going to uh, mention, wrote a really good paper um, on, this, on this issue. And one of the points that Sam Renahan makes on this is if what's being declared when an infant is baptized, that they're brought into the covenant community, right? So the question that needs to be asked is, so they've been brought into this covenant community and they've been taken from some other covenant community and brought into this one. So if they are taken out of union with Adam and brought into union with Christ, they can't be lost or else that sign is not sufficient. That sign is not declarative of what it truly, what it truly is, right? Because they would come back and they would say, well, it's not that we're saying that uh, this makes them born again, but you have to press that and get it all the way to the back and say, well, they're coming out of union with somebody and being brought into this covenant community, so what, what's happening? What are you saying is happening here? Yeah, Fido. Exactly. And, and I think that's the the key issue, even more than Abraham, as you get back to the root of the issue, is union with Adam and union with Christ. Those are the only two areas where we can be. Yes? Um, that very thing you just mentioned yes. is the reason why I went from being a pedo-baptist to a credo-baptist. Amen. Yeah. See? There's an <laughs> amen. <laughs> Let's... Him right here, too, who kind of persuaded me. Um, but they also emphasize uh, the visible church. Like, mm-hmm. they baptism, right. This is the Right. Not necessarily mean that you, that baby is a believer. So right, right. Really so, I, again, I think they're having to stretch to, they're, they're grasping, they're like, okay, how do we, how do, we uh, do this in a safe way <laughs> that doesn't make us look like we're saying that they're in this community? Because if you're in this covenant community, you can't be lost. You can't be separated from this, the, the new covenant community. Once you're, once you're in it, you're there. And I understand the distinction between the visible and the invisible church um, because the, the pushback there would be like, you don't think that you have unbelievers in your community, right? And we say, well, we're not welcoming them in as such, knowing that they're unbelievers, right? We've done our due diligence to hear their profession of faith and so on and so forth. Uh, but can men err? Absolutely. We, we certainly can, and that's why there's church discipline. Um, so that they would be removed from that community. Anyway, I'm getting all fired up here. Desmond. <laughs> yes. Baptism, or someone upon a false profession of faith is baptized, 
but the weight is not upon the one who baptizes him. The preacher is not going to be, or the one who administers that is not going to be punished, yeah. but the one who makes a false profession. Yes. Amen. I, I don't intend to offend anybody. Sure. No, it is. Absolutely. It certainly is. Okay, let me um, just hit on, hit on a few things. And by the way, let's have that conversation lovingly with our, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Norm. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yep. Sure. That's right. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Amen. And he's Credo Baptist by now. He's Credo Baptist. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. All right. All right, Acts 2, 37 and 38, and then also uh, verse 41, as we, as we just think about again that repentant faith is necessary, is a prerequisite for a person to be baptized, just go through a few of these uh, passages real quick with you that the confession um, cites here. Somebody would like to read that for us. Okay, good. So again, focusing on there, repent, be baptized, and then verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, looking at chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, And again, the emphasis there, when they believed Philip, Okay? They were baptized. Acts 10, 44 through 48. Somebody want to read this for us? Okay, again, who have received this Holy Spirit just as we have, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name 
of Jesus Christ. And then just one more here, Acts 16, 31 and 34, the Philippian jailer. Okay, good. Um, I'm not going to get into the issue of household baptisms. That, that's a big issue, but I think, that, you know, this is a text that they might look at. I think it's a very weak argument. Um, and the reason for that, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Okay? So it wasn't just to the Philippian jailer. It was to all who were, who, who were in his house. He and his family baptized, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So there's this rejoicing that's taking place, right? And unbelievers are not rejoicing at, uh, there may be a false rejoicing. Oh, that's good for you. I'm glad that you found a new path in life and hopefully that works out and so on and so forth. But I'm taking this as a genuine rejoicing here, like a joining with uh, others in the gladness that they have been made new creations in Christ. Um, so there's other, other passages on that. But let me conclude here by getting us into paragraphs three and four, which really hits on this issue of how is baptism to be done. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but if somebody wants to read both paragraphs three and four. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, in which the individual is to be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Yes, please. Thanks. Immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary for this ordinance to be administered properly. Okay, good. So, again, what we see here is water is to be used in baptism with the person being baptized, immersed in that water. That's the clear pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. It's most clearly portrays the reality of what has taken place. And I believe that's kind of twofold, which both of which I've already mentioned, but again, portrays the washing away of all the sins of the person being baptized. Um, but more, most clearly, I think, is the portrayal of the death of the person with Christ. So immersion in the water going down into the grave symbolically, so to speak, um, most accurately portrays that reality and then coming back up out of that uh, resurrected unto newness of life. Um, we see here also it's to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus stated in Matthew 28. And the significance of this is that baptism was the symbolic identification or this unification of the one being baptized with the one in whose name he was baptized. Okay, so there's, there's this union in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What's being spoken about here is union with the triune God, uh, that we're being brought into union, which is an awesome uh, awesome reality. So, that being said, we'll conclude with that, but I do have a couple of things, and this is not exhaustive, but these are a couple places that are helpful uh, for you to go if you want to jot these down, if you don't already have these books. <coughs> the Fatal Flaw uh, by Jeffrey Johnson. In particular, his chapter on the dichotomous nature of the Abrahamic covenant is really helpful um, in thinking through this. Uh, the the uh, 
paper that I mentioned earlier by Sam and Micah Ranahan is in the second resource here, Recovering a Covenantal Heritage, edited by Richard Barcellus. Um, that's, that's a helpful, helpful one. That paper also is available online. If you just jump online and you type in Sam and Micah Renahan baptism or believer's baptism, a link will come up for that. It's actually a paper that they wrote when they were in college at Westminster and uh, just having discussions with fellow students over this issue of, of baptism. And then Fred Malone, uh, Baptism of Disciples Alone. That's, that's a helpful uh, resource. Uh, also, another one, if, if you want to watch some videos, <laughs> um, there's a website called 1689federalism.com, 1689federalism.com. Uh, some really good uh, resources on that page, and uh, there's a video specifically that talks about the distinction between Reformed Baptists and our, our Presbyterian brothers. Uh, that's a helpful, helpful place as well. Um, there's more resources. I can mention those to you if you want to come up afterwards. We can talk a little bit more about it, but let me go ahead and, and close this out. And, uh, we'll get ready for service here, okay?